Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. We are one church that meets in various locations across Greater Manchester. For more information about who we are and where we meet, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. If you go on YouTube, you'll, you'll find a lot of videos. And one video that you could find if you wanted to is published by WikiHow. And it's titled, How to Look and Act Happy When You Don't Feel It. And this video is giving tips, not tips about how to be happy, but how to look happy. Early in the video, the narrator says, One of the easiest ways to fake being happy is to smile. Practice smiling with your eyes, not just your mouth, since this will make your smile look and feel more sincere. It goes on to say, use open, confident body language. Keep your head up and your shoulders back. Avoid closed-off postures like folding your arms, crossing your legs, or looking down a lot. And the video goes on and on for a few minutes. Maybe the curious amongst you will go back eager to find out the other tips. The thing is, I don't think many of us, when we come across someone that is unhappy or low or generally struggling, would actually give advice like this. But many of us, from one degree to the next, depending on our personality type, give this advice to ourselves. We tell ourselves it's not okay to be sad. It's not okay to look sad. We follow the advice of this video. Sometimes we're in a lot of pain, and it's been a really rough week. And we get to a Sunday service uh, for church, and someone says, Hiya, how are you doing? And you just go, yeah, yeah, good, thanks. And you just crack on, you don't reveal what's really going on. We follow this impulse to look happy even when we're not. We keep our guard up, even when we're actually talking to people who are our family in Christ. We work hard to keep up our Sunday smile. And we can think that's what we're supposed to do. We can assume that's actually the Christian thing to do. But the Bible calls us to something much deeper than that, something more true, lasting and profound. Our mission shouldn't be to look and act happy when we don't feel it, but to have a posture of joy even through life's hardship, pain and difficulty. And that's a different thing. We're called to be people who are real and honest. So that means we don't pretend everything is fine when it's not. But we're also called to rejoice in all circumstances. In 2 Corinthians in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul talks about being sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Sorrow's a pretty heavy word, you know, it makes you think of intense sadness. But somehow it's possible to be sorrowful and rejoicing at the same time. Genuinely rejoicing though, not just putting on a smile. Because the biblical way is not acting happy when you're not. It's not pretending that pain isn't there or positively reframing every negative situation and acting like bad things aren't actually bad. No, the biblical way is somehow actually rejoicing in the midst of the sorrow. True biblical joy doesn't depend on our external circumstances. So we're left with the question, what is joy then? How can we have it? Where does it come from? We're told in the book of Galatians that joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's not something that we conjure up by our own effort, but it's something that comes through the Holy Spirit being in us. There's a a writer called Esau Macaulay, and reflecting upon the time around the COVID pandemic and the various lockdowns, 
he has something helpful to say about joy. It should come up on the screen behind me. It says, what the Bible actually tells you to do is to reflect upon the events in the life of what God is doing in the world. I don't always have external things that bring me joy. But it is true that sometimes in prayer and when I'm reading the scriptures, and when I think about what God has done, I feel joy infused into me. It's not that I actually read the Bible and I work up joy. What I find is, in the midst of a very difficult year for me, I've had moments where joy interrupted me. So reflecting upon the truth can lead to joy. Joy is not something that we conjure up, but we can take steps that lead us into joy. And there's a psalm we're going to look at today, and it should come up uh, on the screen behind me, and it has some insight about joy. It's, It's Psalm 16, if you want to follow along. So it says, Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. So we reckon this psalm is written by King David, who was one of the most significant kings of Israel that we read about in the Old Testament. And the psalm starts with a pretty desperate tone. There's a focus on raw need. David just says in verse 1, keep me safe. One of our most basic needs is simply safety. As humans, of course, we need physical safety. But we also have a need for inner stability and a sense of security, whatever our situation is. And whatever it meant for David exactly, he was asking for safety. And you might be here right now, you might just feel pretty desperate. There might be a certain need you have or a certain pressure you're facing that you feel you just can't take your mind away from. And it seems that's the way David felt when he wrote this psalm. But something changed for him. It doesn't seem that his circumstances actually changed at all. But he broadened his perspective. He looked at the bigger picture. He brought certain things to mind. That meant that by the end of the psalm, David is talking about fullness of joy and unending pleasure. But it seems that this shift in perspective simply started with these words in verse 2, where he says, You are my Lord. He reminded himself that God is his God. God is the one he ultimately answers to, not himself and not anybody else. The word for joy in this passage, which It's used directly in in verse 11. It literally means gladness or pleasure. And in a simple sense, you could say to experience joy is to be pleased. 
we should say it's to be satisfied. So what's the source of that pleasure, that satisfaction? There might be times today when I use the terms joy and satisfaction interchangeably. I've got three main points about joy that I want to try and draw out of this psalm today. And the points are that joy is not a solo activity. False gods steal our joy and God's presence brings fullness of joy. So firstly, joy is not a solo activity. So one of my favourite films is called About a Boy, and it stars Hugh Grant, who plays a guy called Will. Now, in a lot of ways, Will has everything. His dad wrote a successful Christmas song, which means Will can live off the royalties from the song without ever having to work a day in his life. Will lives in a nice house with a lot of modern gadgets. He drives an Audi. He's pretty trendy. He's confident. But there's something that, in a profound way, is lacking from Will's life. He lives not just independently from other people, but somewhat cut off from meaningful connection with other people. And there's a line from Will at the start of the film that sums up his approach to life. He says, In my opinion, all men are islands. And what's more, now's the time to be one. This is an island age. A hundred years ago, for instance, you had to depend on other people. No one had TV or CDs or DVDs or videos or home espresso makers. As a matter of fact, they didn't have anything cool. Whereas now, you see, you can make yourself a little island paradise. But throughout the film, a strange course of events takes place that leads to Will becoming friends with a socially awkward teenager and his mum. He later ends up joining them for their extended family Christmas dinner. And they're eating a very simple meal, and Will finds himself sat around the dinner table with a bunch of people who aren't in any way like him and aren't in any way cool. But Will reflects on this and says, As I sat there, I had a strange feeling. I was enjoying myself. Through finding community, he started to find joy. And at the start of the film, he thought the path to satisfaction was being this individualistic island paradise with a life full of material pleasure. But that's not where you find fulfilment. It can feel safer and more predictable to steer clear of connecting to people. But doing that will hold back our joy. It's God's design for us to be in community. And David's words from this psalm show us the joy, the delight that we can have in community. But it's a specific kind of community that David's talking about in this psalm. He's talking about the community of God's people. In verse 3, David says, I save the holy people who are in the land. They are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. It's as if David's saying, people are truly beautiful when they're following God. Of course, community in general is good for us and can bring joy to us, but this psalm shows us something unique about the community of God's people that can bring delight. So God's people are causing David joy. David was talking about those that are faithful to God. And the equivalent of those holy people, those noble ones for us, is each other, the church, the family of God. As people who trust in Jesus, we are God's people. We're actually part of the body of Christ. And Christ chooses to live within the community of people that are trusting in him. 
So the church is incredibly significant and worth our attention. You can't be for Jesus and against the church because the church is Jesus' body. As we delight in Jesus, naturally we'll delight in Jesus' body. So to be against God's people or to be indifferent to them and just think, this is about me and God in some isolated spiritual activity is to limit your joy. Because the church is something we can actually delight in. The fact that Jesus chooses to live within a group of people that are trusting in him tells us something about God's heart, tells us something about the value he puts on community. Because the Christian life isn't something that we can go about in isolation. God is a God of community. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he's also made us for community. He invites us into that community. Faith isn't something that's just personal, individual, and intellectual. It's a journey that we go on as a community. Of course, there's, there's a lot of messiness in that community because human beings are involved. But there's a lot of joy, too. I think a lot of joy, a lot of the joy is in the fact that we're in a community that is centred around Jesus, a community that supports one another through life, that celebrates one another's achievements and weeps with one another through the sorrows we face, a community where iron is sharpening iron and we are helping one another to become more like Jesus and to pursue more of the joy of the Lord. This isn't surface level, it's about the pursuit of deep-rooted joy. It's important to note that before David goes on to talk about his delight in God's people, he says to the Lord in verse 2, apart from you, I have no good thing. So David's acknowledging that God is the source of all good things. Any good thing we experience, any joy we have, through other people or by any other means, is ultimately a gift from God himself. And we need the joy that comes from God for our relationships with each other to work. So what David is really delighting in, what we can really delight in, is the goodness of God that he's chosen to place within other people. And again, it says something about God's way of doing things, that he chooses to place his goodness within human beings. So let's not get on a downer about God's people. Let's not get on a downer about the church. Let's delight in one another. Secondly, false gods steal our joy. In verse 4, David says, Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. In simple terms, it's as if David is saying, Worshipping other gods will be painful, so I'm not going to do that. There's quite a contrast made in the psalm between what the results will be for those who place the true God at the centre of their life and what the results will be for those who place false gods at the centre of their life. We're told that with the true God at our right hand, we will not be shaken, that's verse 8. We won't be abandoned, verse 10. And ultimately, we'll know unending joy and pleasure, as verse 11 tells us. In stark contrast to that, verse 4 tells us that those who run after other gods, after false gods, will suffer more and more. 
We might look at the language here and feel very removed from the running after false gods that David is talking about. You know, here it's talking about people pouring out libations of blood to false gods. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's unlikely any of us have been up to that in our lives or know anyone that's been up to that. But all of us, in some form or another, have chased after false gods. Jesus is the only one that can truly satisfy us. But so often we go to other things looking for this satisfaction, this joy. And these other things are just unable to give us that satisfaction that we long for. A lot of the time we we go to things that are actually good in and of themselves, but we ask them to fulfill us in ways that they were never designed to fulfill us. We put a pressure on things that they were never designed to bear. I know from my own experience that this principle in in verse 4 is true. When I've chased after other things that aren't in line with God's will for me, I've been left in a place where I've wearied myself in this pursuit only to not achieve the satisfaction I was aiming for. And what often drives this running after false gods is actually, deep down, our desire for joy, for satisfaction and fulfilment. But we often don't direct that desire in the right place towards Christ himself. Because the desire we have for joy is good, and God can actually give us more joy than we could imagine. But when we look for joy apart from, apart from God, we do suffer more and more, as this verse says. C.S. Lewis put it well. He said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So finally, God's presence brings fullness of joy. I wonder if you've ever been planning a party or a get-together and you've been thinking about all the different elements you need to make it work. You might ask your trendiest friend to to make a playlist with the right songs that can uh, cover the different phases of the night. You might get some people to bring some, some nice drinks, some snacks, set up some atmospheric lighting. But there's often another key ingredient that you need. There's one person in particular that you know will just raise the game of the party. They're the type of person that you know will just walk into the room and bring energy and enthusiasm. They'll have everyone laughing within 30 seconds. They'll tell interesting stories. They'll create conversations that bring together a bunch of people that don't know each other. They'll make people who have come to this party begrudgingly actually want to be there. It's not that this person has actually brought a specific item with them or that they've brought a really nice gift. What they've brought is themselves. It's their very presence that transforms the atmosphere. Who they are is far more important than anything they could give you. And there's a truth here that applies to God. In our pursuit of joy, who God is is far more important than anything he could give us. Verse 11 of this psalm tells us that in God's presence there is fullness of joy. As I said at the start today, true biblical joy is something that is much deeper than general upbeatness, smiliness and enthusiasm. 
As we've seen, joy is something we can actually have in the midst of sorrow. So in using the analogy I just used, I'm not saying God's presence always fills a room with laughter and general positivity. Of course, there are times when God's presence does bring this atmosphere of celebration. But clearly, we can be sorrowful and rejoicing at the same time. So the fullness of joy that God's presence brings is something deep-rooted. It's a satisfaction that can be there even in the hard times. But the principle that links from the analogy is that the main factor in God bringing us joy and true satisfaction is not whatever gift God may give us. It's who God actually is. It's his character. It's his presence. If you want fullness of joy, if you want complete satisfaction, you've got to be in God's presence. But why is it that God's presence brings fullness of joy for us? I think part of it is because God's presence stops death having the final word in our life. Verse 10 says, You will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. There's a general declaration here that death won't have the final word. But the second part of this verse is actually unpacked more in the New Testament. Verses 8 to 10 of this psalm are quoted by Peter in the New Testament in Acts chapter 2. Because ultimately, David in this psalm was talking about Christ and his resurrection. This psalm was prophesying that Jesus would be raised from the dead. Yet David wrote this psalm, but when Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, he quotes these words of the psalm which say, you won't abandon me to the realm of the dead and you won't let your faithful one see decay. And Peter says, well, the thing is, David did die. He was buried. He did decay. You can find his tomb. So these words of this psalm can't ultimately be about David. But Peter's saying, I know someone who faced death but didn't see decay because he overcame death and was raised from the dead. He's talking about Jesus. And Peter contrasts David's tomb with Jesus' empty tomb. Peter tells us that this psalm is David speaking prophetically, looking to the future, knowing that God has promised him this descendant Jesus that would be the ultimate king. So we can see that in a significant way, this psalm is about Christ overcoming death. And I think ultimately this is key to the joy that we're talking about. Christ overcame death, and he didn't overcome it just for himself. He overcame death for all who put their trust in him. Jesus himself said in John 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Death is one of the greatest causes of sorrow, one of the greatest thieves of joy, But all those who trust in Jesus are promised this resurrection, that they will live even though they die. And David was given a glimpse of this hope through the Holy Spirit when he wrote this psalm. So David could see that through Christ's resurrection, even when he would go on to die, death would not have the final word. He could look at any death that was going to come his way and place it into a bigger picture. And the decisive truth in this bigger picture is that Christ has conquered death. And looking forward to this truth allows David to say in verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. 
We can rejoice in the fact that Christ has conquered death. But it's not just about rejoicing in what God does for us. It's about rejoicing in who God actually is. It's God himself that will ultimately satisfy us. As we've seen in these words of Jesus that we looked at briefly, Jesus doesn't just give us resurrection and life. He himself is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the path of life that this psalm speaks of. Verse 11 goes on to say that there is fullness of joy in God's presence and there are eternal pleasures at his right hand. In this broken world where we do face pain, we do face sickness, we do lose loved ones, we probably feel we've not experienced much of that resurrection life. But the truth is that God is with us and that that's who he is. He is the resurrection and the life. So his presence can actually give us satisfaction. It can bring us joy because we know that he's conquered death and that he's promised us as those who believe in him that we will share in that resurrection. This is at the heart of true joy and satisfaction. This is the decisive truth that has transformed human history. I think this is how it's possible that we can actually be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Because in us and with us is the one who is the resurrection and the life. So true joy is deep-rooted. It's a joy that withstands the hardships of life and it acknowledges them. Maybe some of us feel it's not okay to acknowledge the pain we're in. We might feel that we have to put on this, this upbeat smile and not acknowledge where we're really at. I think we need to be reminded that to rejoice doesn't mean to act like we have no problems. Let's remind ourselves that Jesus himself wept at the death of his friend. Maybe some of us are are trying hard to survive on our own. Um, We have our guard up against other people. Let's rejoice in God's design that he's actually put us into this church family where we can be real with one another and journey through life's hardships together. And maybe some of us are just wearying ourselves, trying to find satisfaction and joy from things that aren't God himself. Let's truly reflect on the fact that in God's presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's find our satisfaction and joy in him, in his presence. Thanks for listening. To explore this sermon or learn more about our church, please navigate to the links provided in this podcast description. From there, you can connect with us on social media and you're welcome to check out the music links featured in this episode. From our very own musicians. You can also discover current events and information about where we meet on Sundays and various groups or community projects that you can join in with. If you're interested in knowing more about us or wish to join us for one of our meetings, please reach out. Simply drop us an email at hello at ccm.org.uk. We look forward to connecting with you.
so 